0: Thanks for connecting with our online content at Holy Trinity Church in Richmond. We really hope that what we share with you will be a blessing and will help you to continue to grow in your knowledge and love of God. How many of you have ever read the books or seen the TV show called Ripley's Believe It or Not? Is there a young person in your life who has opened one of these books with you? Uh, they deal in bizarre events and items that are so strange and unusual that readers would question the claims that they make. Uh, they are so strange and unusual that you probably wouldn't believe what it was that's in these books. Uh, So, something that I learnt from a Ripley's Believe It or Not was that in the Navajo tradition, the first person to make an infant laugh has to throw a party for that baby and their whole village. I also learnt that the ocean contains enough uranium to power the planet for 10,000 years. That's interesting stuff. These books have associated museums with them and they're called auditoriums. Not auditoriums, auditoriums. And they're full of unbelievable facts that have to be verified to be believed. If you didn't see it there in text, having been checked, you wouldn't believe that it was true. Well, the Gospel of Luke is a bit like Ripley's Believe It or Not. It sets out the truth of things that sound impossible. At the heart of this book, the Gospel of Luke and Luke's second volume, the Book of Acts, is the historicity of the claims that Jesus of Nazareth was actually the long-promised Messiah, that Jesus of Nazareth was the Savior, that he alone is the hope of the world. Luke writes this book and sets out to reassure his dear friend Theophilus that all of the confusing and weird and unbelievable things that he's heard about Jesus are actually the fulfillment of God's salvation plans. This morning, we're going to start by spending some time with Theophilus in verses 1 to 4 as we think about whether he can believe it or not. Then we're going to move to the temple, and in the temple, we'll see an unbelievable encounter in verses 5 to 17, and then we're going to finish with one response of unbelief and one response of belief in verses 18 to 25. Why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do speak to us by your word. And we thank you that Luke has recorded this gospel for us. We pray this morning that as we open this gospel, you would open our hearts and minds to hear the message that Luke has for us. Particularly as we come to this season of Advent, where we think about our great hope in you, Lord Jesus. Would you speak to us clearly by your word, we pray. Amen. Well, as we begin this season of Advent and open up Luke's Gospel, we are going to see a tremendous story of hope. Luke's a Gentile doctor and he's had his whole life changed by an encounter, not just with a story, but by an encounter with the Lord and Saviour, Jesus of Nazareth. He has sold out his whole life so that he can share the good news He's accompanied the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys. He's been out there strengthening the church, and now he reassures the church that what they have heard about Jesus, the Apostle's teaching, is true. In this Advent season and into next year, we are going to see the big theme of God at work in Luke's gospel. It's a wonderful gospel. And it's an easy gospel to get to grips with in some ways because Luke lays out his intentions for us so clearly at the start. His intent is to reassure Theophilus that what he's heard is trustworthy and true and reliable. He's being reminded that faith in Jesus is not a vain hope, but a sure and certain hope. There are two things that the original recipients of both of Luke's writings were likely to be struggling with, and Theophilus is in the same boat. The first thing that they were struggling with was a dead saviour. How could it be that the Messiah would die? It made no sense. And the second thing was that they were a persecuted community of God. If they were really God's people, why were they suffering so much? And how was it that that community included Gentiles? They knew the promises of the Old Testament to Israel through Abraham's family, So how could Gentiles be included as well? Well, we've spent time in Genesis over the last year and a bit preparing us for Luke's gospel. You didn't know that, but I did. Luke shows how Jesus is the fulfillment of the great covenant promises of the Old Testament, especially those promises that were made to Abraham. I hope you could recite them in your sleep. Promises that he would have a land, that he would become a great nation, and that through him would become a blessing to the whole world. Theophilus and other believers who had been Jewish were struggling with the radical new inclusivity of the kingdom of God. The kingdom was now open to anyone from anywhere through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. The apostles had claimed that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was God's long-promised salvation plan. But he died, and his people were suffering and persecuted. Surely if Jesus was really the Messiah, come among them then unnumbered blessings would be raining down on his people from heaven. The Messiah surely would be sitting on a throne in the heart of Jerusalem, and Israel would be restored to her former glory. Surely that was God's salvation plan. But Luke writes and shows that that wasn't the case, that it was never intended to be the case. He details how Jesus is at the center of God's plan, a plan that anticipated not only his death, but more significantly, his resurrection bodily from the grave and his ascension to heaven where he would reign at the right hand of God. The place where he offers the benefits of salvation as Lord to any who would come to him. Luke writes to give Theophilus hope. Hope that his faith is not in vain. That's a wonderful hope for us to be reminded of at the start of Advent as well, isn't it? Luke's gospel is not a record of his ideas or some kind of philosophy. It narrates events that have been brought to completion among us, verse 1 says. This is an account of the concrete saving acts of God that have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The gospel is not a noble moral proclamation. It's not a set of abstract teachings. It's not truths to help us get the most out of life or a guide on how we could build authentic community. It's not a compilation of cheerful thoughts to give us enough pep to get through the week or when life is tough. The gospel, the good news of Jesus recorded by Luke, is God's salvation plan brought into action in the person of Jesus, God incarnate, the babe born at Bethlehem. We see that Luke has carefully investigated and verified and authenticated this word that he presents to the world. He's spent time with eyewitnesses, journeying with some of them. He's tested the veracity of their claims about Jesus being the Christ. And he has total confidence. He has certainty, verse 4 tells us, that the apostles' teaching is what it claims to be. It is true and worthy of building a life of faith upon Not just for believing in, but for living out. If you've built your life on a truth claim, you want to be sure it's a firm foundation, don't you? Every day there are going to be stories and philosophies and approaches that entice us to build our lives on. Each day we will encounter idols which want to call us to worship them. Think about building your life on a foundation of success. That foundation causes us to strive endlessly, it tires us, it leaves us empty without the next big achievement. The idol of success leads us feeling like a failure. Or a foundation of family which causes us to put family before everything else or to cultivate the perfect family moments that we share on Instagram or Facebook or put up on the family calendar. Everything has to be perfect, and so we control and manage and maintain this perfect box of a family um, a family picture. Well, the idol of family actually pushes others away, and it only increases our loneliness. Well, think about building your life on a foundation of a need for security. That keeps us awake at night, doesn't it? As we worry about bank balances and investments, as we worry about looming recessions or the increasing cost of living, the idol of security increases our insecurity and creates great worry. What about if we build our life on the foundation of self-sufficiency, the Kiwi way? Well, it results in great disappointment as we age or get ill, doesn't it? The idol of self-sufficiency increases our despair when we need to rely on others. These foundations are not sure in certain places for us to build our lives. But they are idols that call us to worship them. They are idols of our hearts. And we can only defeat the idols of our hearts if every morning, every day, brand new afresh, we bring adoration to the only one who is worthy of our worship. We can only worship what we believe in. The one who brings freedom from the idols of this world is where we should put our trust. The one who brings freedom from the idols of this world is the one that we should build our foundation on, on the Lord Jesus, the hope of the world for atonement from sin and a peace that endureth, even amidst life's storms and trials as his people. And so Luke writes... To reassure Theophilus that he is the foundation that his life should be built on. Yes, suffering goes hand in hand with obedience to God. Yes, Jesus died but was raised to life again in accordance with God's promises. He comes to explain that all that he has heard is true. And so it's no real surprise then that Luke starts with one of the first unbelievable encounters in the good news of Jesus. It's around a year and a half before he was born. Look at verses 5 to 17. In verse 5, we meet a godly couple, but they live in tragic circumstances. Zechariah is a priest, and he served in the temple for two one-week periods each year. That was what he did. Elizabeth was also from a priestly family. We're told that she was from the family of Aaron. They've got the same background. And that kind of marriage was regarded as a sign of special privilege to have two priestly families linked like that. Except for one thing, they are well advanced in age, and they have no children. They are righteous, verse 6 tells us, under the law. They uphold the requirements of God's people obediently. They are faithful to God in how they order their lives. So despite the common thought at the time, Elizabeth's infertility isn't a result of a divine judgment. God has kept this couple without children, for a special purpose. Now, we've seen another instance of that recently, haven't we? Over the past weeks. In Abraham and and Sarah's life, we've seen them waiting for the birth of Isaac. And so we are being prepared here by Luke to expect great things from these events. There's a similarity there. In the family life of another elderly couple who have no children, but are righteous before God, we are to expect great things to take place, and great things do. We see that Zechariah is on duty at the temple, and he's chosen by lot to burn incense in the Holy of Holies. Zechariah is about to have the most amazing day of his life. He has been chosen out of the lucky dip with a one in 18,000 chance to do a really special job. He's chosen to burn incense before the altar of God. This is a a once-in-a-lifetime honor. He will never get the opportunity to repeat this. If you've been chosen to burn incense in the Holy of Holies, your name gets taken out of the hat for next year. There's no second opportunity. It's too special. Well, this is the big moment. And at this point, Zechariah has got to be thinking, this is up there with the best days of his life. If he'd been chosen to captain the All Blacks, it wouldn't be as special. And as he goes into the Holy of Holies to burn incense, things ramp up for him even more. As Zechariah is burning the incense, verse 11 tells us, the angel Gabriel appears to him. Now, understandably, Zechariah is terrified. But Gabriel assures him that he comes to bring him good news. Zechariah's prayer has been heard. Now, we don't know about his prayer, but God has heard it. His prayer for the nation of Israel has been heard, that deliverance would come to God's special people. And as this was the custom, making this prayer in the evening, incense was burnt. Gabriel comes and explains how God is going to use Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth to play a part in this prayer being answered, in his covenant promise being fulfilled. As God prepares to bless all the nations through Jesus, the descendant of Abraham, Elizabeth and Zechariah have a part to play. To prepare the way for the Lord, Zechariah and Elizabeth will have a child. They are to name him John, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. This is not your normal birth announcement that goes in the papers. Luke tells us all of this so that we can see the links between God's promises in the Old Testament and Isaiah And the birth of this child who is to be named John, the Messiah, King Jesus, will be preceded by a prophet, the greatest Old Testament prophet. And it's going to be this child, John, who will one day baptize. Luke shows that his gospel is consistent with the Old Testament, that Jesus has always been God's salvation plan, He has prepared a forerunner who would call attention to Jesus, the one who saves. John's birth to a righteous couple has set an expectation that what is coming next is going to be worth taking note of. But although we come to this startling announcement with a sense of anticipation that God is at work, this pious priest responds in an unexpected manner. Look at verses 18 to 25 with me. As surprised as we are by all that we've heard, the greatest shock comes in verse 18. Zechariah, a priest, chosen to burn incense in the Holy of Holies, someone who is blameless under the law, doesn't respond in faith. Zechariah has a human moment. In the midst of... Of the most transcendent spiritual experience he could ever know, his response is typically human. He asks for a confirming sign. How can I be sure of this? We're old. It's not possible, verse 18. How can we be sure that they will have a child, that he will prepare the way for the Messiah? that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit and bring that back their people to God? Well, we can be sure because God said it. Zechariah hears the words, but he doesn't believe in his heart. And he receives an immediate judgment from the angel Gabriel. He will be mute. He will be unable to speak. He will be denied the privilege of making this announcement to the world. Until all that has been foretold comes to pass. It's quite the opposite of Elizabeth's response in verse 25, isn't it? After she becomes pregnant, her words express a sense of joy and relief since God has removed a source of her pain. God has acted in her life. God pays personal attention to Elizabeth. Isn't that mind blowing? That as God brings about his salvation plan, he is also meeting human needs, deep human needs. John may have a special role for Israel to set the way for the Messiah, but he will also meet a personal need for Elizabeth. Her shame at being childless has been removed. Isn't that amazing grace in action? That the creator of the world would care enough, about one woman's shame that he draws near her and gives her a tremendous honor. He doesn't just give her a baby, but he chooses her to be the mother of the greatest prophet the world would ever know. God is interested in the detail of individual human lives and hearts, even as he works out his grand plans for salvation and the future of humanity. Friend, if you have ever felt abandoned by God, then remember Elizabeth. He has done this for her, and he meets our needs himself. We have even more than Elizabeth had. We have the very word of God which tells us who we are and what we are to do, that we are loved by the Lord and that he's given us his Holy Spirit. We have received so much from him, even as he works out salvation in the world. So, friend, take heart and do not despair. Continue to build your life on the foundation of faith that is in the Lord Jesus alone. It's a foundation that Luke has laid firmly so that Theophilus might not only believe the apostles and other eyewitnesses, but also see how these events stand rooted in the long-awaited promises of God, beginning with Abraham. They are trustworthy, and not only can they be believed as an initial means of finding salvation in Jesus, as we come to him and acknowledge that we are a sinful and broken people, as we repent and ask for his forgiveness and receive it, not only are they a means of finding salvation in Jesus, but they are a means that can be believed for us to build our whole life on now. That is Luke's call to Theophilus poor Theophilus, who's trying to make sense of the radical inclusion of the kingdom of God and the ongoing suffering of the church. We can imagine him asking himself the question, if God's kingdom is really meant to be this way, then why is the church hurting? Why did Jesus suffer? Why is it so hard to endure? Well, sometimes we ask the same question, don't we? In our church community, we have a culture which stands as opposite to the values of the world as Jesus ever has. We are suffering, not in the same way as the Christians around Theophilus. We aren't paying with our lives, but we can be confused about why the church is in decline. We can be confused about the, why the world doesn't particularly want to listen to us anymore. We can be confused about why the biblical values, which in some of our lifetimes were the mainstay of Western society, have us so out of step with our friends or our family or our workmates who don't follow Jesus. Jesus. Like Theophilus, maybe what you've heard about Jesus sometimes just seems too hard to hold fast to. Maybe the hope has started to drain away. And you're pushing through out of sheer stubbornness or dedication to the cause or determination or because this is what you've always done. Friend, if that's you, then the call for you is to live by faith, not by endurance and striving and hard work. But to simply believe and trust in the promises of God that he has your best interests at heart, that he has the very best for you, that he has a life that is full of hope and goodness awaiting. The call for us church is to live by faith, to believe absolutely, and then take that belief which has led to saving faith in the Lord Jesus alone to build up our whole lives as we act and live out our faith and share and live the good news of Jesus. We have a great hope, At the start of this Advent season, let's pray and ask God to sear it on our hearts. Lord, we thank you so much for Luke and that he wrote this account for his friend Theophilus. Thank you for his absolute confidence after having so carefully investigated eyewitness accounts that your word is true. Lord, would you please help us to hold fast to the Apostle's teaching when it is difficult? And when it has us out of step with the world, would you please help us to stay in step with you? Lord, there are times where we despair and struggle, where faith seems too hard. Would you please, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to continue to trust in you, that we might set aside the idols of this world which clamor for our attention and build our lives on the firm foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. We ask it in his name and for his glory. Amen. If you'd like to connect with more of our online content at Holy Trinity in Richmond, you can do that by going to our YouTube page, simply by searching for Richmond Anglican Aotearoa. You can also touch base with us online at our website, or on Facebook by searching with those same words. Friends, we're so thankful that you've joined us online and that you're enjoying our content. We really do hope and pray that God is blessing you through it. If you've got any feedback, you can touch base with me, Zane at richmondparish.nz. Thanks so much for listening.